0: All right, I just want to start this episode with a possible trigger warning. Um, We'll be talking about topics related to trauma, mental health, and psychological distress. So if this isn't for you, please take care of yourself and feel free to catch us in the next episode.
1: BIPOC people they want to talk about race but they want someone who knows that who allows them to be able to do it but if you have this big layer of like this big invisible brick wall that says white supremacy validates black suffering and black suffering validates white supremacy then you're going to inadvertently say some things that are going to put the client down and these are ways of being able to make the therapist protect their own ego and protect their own, like, beliefs um, and to also protect a system that's actually not worth protecting.
0: So today we're talking about racism and mental health. Last year, in 2021, about one in five Canadians screened positive for symptoms of anxiety, depression or PTSD. And for Black Canadians, that number increases to the tune of 300% because of racism. And getting the right help is tough. Mental health wait lists are as long as ever, and once people do find help, unconscious bias and racism can make it into the therapy room. So today I'm talking to David Archer, a black psychotherapist who specializes in racial trauma, and he wrote a book called Anti-Racist Psychotherapy. We'll talk about what we can do to fight racism in the therapy room. My name is Eric DeCare, and this is No Simple Answers. So, David, thanks thanks for coming on.
1: Yeah, well, thank you also, Eric, for having me, and it's an honor to be like a guest on your on your podcast, and looking forward to having our discussion.
0: Thank you, thank you, I really appreciate it. There is so much to talk about. Like, uh, skim through a bit of your book, and it just kind of it just you have a beautiful way of writing, and you have a really compassionate way of diagnosing a lot of the ways that a lot of the problems that sort of go into like, how we think about and how we treat mental health um, and particularly when we start thinking about um, black and indigenous and, and racialized people. But um, So I do want to dive into that. There's a lot there. but um, before we do that, I just wanted to just so our audience knows, just tell me a little bit about, about yourself. Like where are you coming from as you write this book as a therapist? And, and like I'm also curious just why did you get in to therapy to begin with? So, um,
1: so I was raised in a, in a town that's called, uh, Geek And, uh, when back in the day, I'd say that the population demographics are kind of like 99% Quebecois and then 1% me. So wasn't much racial diversity so far or, and like in that situation, now it's probably changed. Now there's a lot more people that are there, but when I was younger, there was the, referendum that was happening so Quebec was thinking about separating from the rest of the country so there's this division between who was English and who is French and as a youth there was also this idea of the uh, there was the Oka crisis that was going on so then there was then this division between who's English who's French who is native who's non-native who's white who is black so it's kind of to say that um had no choice but to to be concerned about identity and concerned about what it meant to be either a Black Anglophone, what it meant to be like a a so-called, as you had said at the beginning, racialized, which I do want to say it's an interesting term because the thing is that uh, many people use the term racialized and I think that um, uh, many white people don't know that they have a race. So that's why when we say racialized, We have to understand that white people too have a race, but uh, we don't speak about race in a way that makes a lot of sense to me personally. So that's the reason why I wanted to try to understand why it is that there are these disparities. So the thing is that um, I spent some time uh, being a software engineer and uh, trying to understand how to uh, make a computer Um, that only looks at things from the aspect of binaries that the computer is going to speak in terms of true or false all the time, like how to use a computer language to be able to make applications that serve the needs of complex humans. And uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, It was very challenging. And then I tried to go into a field that I thought would be easier. And I chose trying to understand human systems, which was the biggest mistake possible to understand humans. But um, the thing is that uh, after going into computers, I studied in psychology. And then over time, I also did a little bit of teaching, taught English as a second language to uh, immigrant populations, spoke to some people who were from Japan and realized even though they didn't speak English, I had a way of communicating with them beyond language. So it's very fascinating to me that, uh, that it's not just the words, it's kind of the energy of the interaction that allows for us to communicate with others. After that, then I did masters in social work, did social work, worked in a native community and worked with uh, people who were suffering from addictions. And there I saw that, it was impossible to separate, one, the addiction from the trauma that the person has been through, and two, that their trauma was a result of a multi-generational transmission, that they themselves were not fully responsible for the trauma they went through, especially if their parents went through it and their grandparents went through it, and that there was a, a government that wanted it to happen in the first place. So. So that introduced me to the idea of like, seeing that not only is it that we have the so-called talking care, but that we're able to help people to heal at the level of the spirit. After all that, then I became a marriage and family therapist. Then I started to see that there's intersecting, like if you're speaking to an individual, you're almost always speaking to an individual in the context of where they come from. Like there's no person who's outside of a relationship that even when the therapist is speaking to the client, that the therapist is impacted by the interaction, um, on some level, when you're able to help the client, the client is also learning ways of helping their relationship. Client's also helping their community when they are able to resolve their issues.
0: It's a, it's a beautiful way to view the world. And, And it's something that came out in your writing that I really appreciated, and um, and I do like that contextual approach and, and you really bring up a good point about interrogating um, whiteness and, and and the use of that term racialized. Um, and I do want to get to that. Um, I don't know. I think it, it, it took me a while to understand what trauma meant to me, and I think it's something that a lot of people may not understand. Um, and maybe that they experience and they just don't know that that, that this is what it's called. So what is trauma? like well, what's your definition of of that word
1: yeah so i mean my definition is probably going to uh, sound a little strange to people but uh you know the thing is uh, as a therapist i work in the realms of strangeness <laughs> i think this is this is what we do when we dive into the ideas of of a person's mind and how they see themselves and how the world sees them there's not much that's normal uh out there um and normal is strange and strange is normal But what I will say, though, is that trauma is a problem of relationships. Uh, What usually happens is that um, for a person to become traumatized, it's that they're experiencing something that's challenging to them, that exceeds their internal and external resources. For example, um, if we're going to talk about children, it's easier for children to be traumatized by certain things Comparatively speaking, because one, they don't have the life experience, and two, is that they may not have the ability to defend themselves, and uh, in some cases, they may not have someone who's there to defend them. So, when we think about the infant, like uh, when a child is born, the child is looking at the parent, the parent is looking at the child. The child, in a way, knows that they exist because the the parent is looking at them. Uh, The parent. Uh, cares for the child and must care for the child in order for the child to be able to grow. The infant is unable to survive without relationships. It's not possible. Um, They need someone else to let them know when they're hungry or to help them when they're hungry, help them to use the bathroom, all of these basic, basic things. So of course, children are going to be more vulnerable. Um, But when the child is able to see that the parents care for them, uh, the child is then able to recognize that they have a basic set of uh, of importance in the world. So, as the child is able to see that the parent cares for them, that the parent loves them, the child also gets the idea that there is caring in the world, that there is love that is in the world. And so, that basic idea of the child seeing from the parent uh, the the understanding of the world. This is why I mean. This is what it means when we talk about that all individuals are a product of the relationships that they're that they're in so what happens with a person who's traumatized even if they're young or even if they're older is that the, a terrible thing happens to them and it gets pathogenically encoded into their memory networks so that there's an association that is made this association is going to be because this happened i believe this about myself because this happened, I believe this about relationships to others. So when I say that trauma is uh, has everything to do with relationships, it's because it's not only what happened, it's how you've now internalized it and how it becomes uh, a part of who you are as a person. So when I talk, uh, and you may ask, ask this later, but when I talk about racial trauma, is one, just to understand that race itself is a complete social fabrication. It's com- it's not real. It's recently invented. And it changes with time. So there's some white people who were not white people when they were in Europe, and then through decades, uh, they became white people when they are in North America. My Irish brothers and sisters, you guys know what's up. My Italian brothers and sisters, you guys know what's up. Is that there's some level where Sometimes you you're you're treated in a certain way when you get here, but then over time we see that the numbers of so-called white people decrease. So then they open up the gates, and then they are like, "Okay, we're accepting new admission." So then more what more people become white people. Racial trauma means that because of a person's social uh, constr- socially constructed identity, they're going to be predisposed to certain forms of trauma more than other individuals. And these can be either real or perceived instances um, that it's like the brain just incorporates as being damaged to the system. Because if we look at the medical model and the idea of what trauma is, it is when a person is going to be impacted, hit hard by something. So then when I'm talking about trauma, I'm also talking about that. I'm just talking about how a person might have got psychologically hit hard by something. So you may not see the wound on the outside. But just to know that even emotional damage can leave these scars so then i'm going to talk about that individual form of trauma which is at that individual level but racial trauma which is at like a larger scale than just the individual and seems to just target certain people just because of what they look like if you turn a light on in the room <laughs> okay it's that's why it's like it's not a logical thing it's a psychological thing
0: something that is is surprising to me or is how invisible it can feel to yourself. So I'm just wondering if you can walk me through, like if I'm a person and and I'm unaware, like what are some signs? Like what's that experience like?
1: Well, the thing is that like trauma is going to look differently depending on who you are, depending on your socialization. Um, The reason why I I, like spoke about racialized before is because sometimes we'll say words like gendered as well. And whenever we're talking about gendered, Many times it's like as if we're not talking about men, but men themselves, uh, they have a gender. But when men are thinking of gender, or generally in society when we're thinking of gender, we're not talking about the people who have the most power. So the thing is that men, I feel, are not always going to show trauma in the same ways um, because men are not supposed to be hurt. In our society, if you're a real man, if you're a big man, and nothing hurts you you don't need nothing and you can do everything by yourself and you got freedom okay like the thing is that the idea of a man uh in our society is just like it's created the idea of a woman in our society these roles that we are going to say what a woman's job is what a man's job these things are all created but sometimes for certain individuals depending on their culture depending on how they were told to be a person, like, you know, boys don't cry. So if boys don't cry, then that means that if you're looking at a boy who's been traumatized and a girl who's been traumatized, it may be harder to tell who has been traumatized. So I'm willing to bet um, that there's a lot of men that have been through a lot of difficulties, but they have been able to find ways of dissociating from their experience of trying to kind of like separate themselves from the experience that is that is stuck in the body because they have to conform to the idea of what is what society says is a functioning person. So, um, when you ask me what does trauma look like, I have I have to tell you uh, the same question is what is normal look like because the thing is that we my clients uh, when I see them and they walk into the room you can't know they're traumatized. There's no way it it doesn't show up on their name tag doesn't show up on the Zoom conference call, it doesn't, (laughs) that's not what happens, is that um, trauma may look different. But many times when I'll meet with some people, oftentimes uh, their trauma is going to resemble an idea that they're feeling as if they are not either cut out for the world or that, that they don't have what it takes in order to participate in the world on some level, shape, or form. And trauma is also going to look like the negative beliefs a person has about themselves. I'm not good enough, I'm unworthy, I'm unlovable, I'm a bad person, all of these these things. Strangely enough, when we ask the person about their trauma and we ask what are the words that are associated with it, those uh, phrases tend to come up without fail. That's why it's not just limited to one culture, one race, one gender, even in the absence of gender, you're going to see trauma. So um, yeah, I know it's a complex (laughs) answer, but I hope it answers the question.
0: No, I love complexity. No. And, 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 and that's totally right. And when all this is exacerbated by the pressures that the world puts on us to, to be a certain way, to play a certain role. I mean, in the case of men, right, it's, you know, if you're, if you're the bread earner in a family, it's, there's this feeling like you can't crack and that's where toxic masculinity comes in and that's where um a lot of pain comes um but you know now imagine what that feels like for pressures on other genders maybe this is a good segue to get into like the 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 wider structures like you've talked about it a little bit already but um in, in your book you talk about white supremacy and i think it's it's easy to recoil at that word because I I think it might feel loaded. But in your book, you treat it in a very I, I I like the way that you explore this idea because you talk about how it impacts everyone, um, and how it can cause pain for everyone. It's it you treat it more as a diagnosis more so than an accusation or which which I like a lot. But uh, I'm just wondering if you can unpack a little bit, just like well, what is white supremacy?
1: So the thing is that. Uh, White supremacy is the racial trauma of white people, generally speaking, that's what it is. Many times when we talk about white supremacy, we're going to talk about how it impacts people who are not white, but it's just the way how I see it come about, it looks like it's it's that racism itself is not a black person's problem, it's a white person's problem. It's just that the black person tends to be close by, so they're affected and impacted by it. Um, I'll say it in uh, in this way that, again, as I said, is that race doesn't really exist, but I do believe that in order for uh, Black people to exist, white people needed to be created at the same time, and Black people needed to be created at the same time. So these are all fabrications. So white doesn't really exist. And some people are white, again, depending on where they travel. Some people are Black. But then they go to another place and they're colored or something, you know what I mean? So these things are really, they change with time and they change with space and all of that. So they're not really fixed ideas. But in the book, I talk about white supremacy to explain that it's, um, there's two uh, different researchers that uh, that explained about it. One was Francis Cress Welsing, the other one was uh, Andrea Smith. And so Francis Cress Welsing explains that white supremacy is a local and global power system. And a lot of it impacts law, impacts like the way how we communicate with each other. So not only law, but it's going to impact politics. It'll inc- impact health. It'll impact like um, just our basic way of of interacting with one another, our media and you know, all of these things. And a lot of it is designed to prevent the genetic annihilation of white people. So what that means is that it is the cause and or the push behind it is to make it so white people don't disappear. And so when we speak to, or when you hear from white supremacists, they will say that they're in fear of being replaced. But I'm going to look at that from the perspective of my clients and the people who are traumatized and the people who do feel as if they are going to die, sometimes something happened to them. It's the only reason why they're going to have this belief and sometimes it can be a little irrational. But again, we're not in the side of logic, we're in the side of psychologics. So, um, Andrew Smith is going to interpret uh, white supremacy as being uh, there's three pillars to it. So, the first pillar is going to relate to uh, anti Black racism or slaveability. So, just the idea that certain bodies can be commodified, that there's a price on certain bodies. And that kind of like anchors the idea of like, anti-Black racism, slavability, and just the idea that people should be in servitude to others. Then after there's going to be the other anchor which is going to relate to colonialism. Uh, Colonialism is going to relate to the idea that our Indigenous uh, brothers and sisters, our Indigenous family, that they themselves as well um, are going to kind of permanently be under attack in a Canadian or American context because the land must be uh, inherited by white people. It must be inherited by the colonizers, by the invaders. So indigenous people must always be relegated to the past. They always must be disappearing. So again, this is just the idea that um, this is just another, like the second pillar of white supremacy. And then the third pillar of white supremacy will relate to Orientalism. Orientalism was a term that was created from uh, Edward Said, and orientalism is going to refer to this general idea that the foreigner, the person who is outside of the country, must be on some level dangerous. Immigrants are taking our jobs, they're 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 not gonna give us the right opportunities when they come by our borders. They're gonna take our white woman. And that's why you know marijuana is illegal because they don't want Mexicans to take white women and And like opioids and like a lot of the drug laws are actually ridiculous for why certain drugs are illegal in the United States and also probably here as well. But that's I guess a topic for another time. But it's really to say that orientalism then is going to anchor the aspect of war in our society, of meaning that whiteness too is going to relate to this idea that you must constantly be at war. You must constantly be willing to attack or to fight. And again. All of these things that i've described they resemble the person who is traumatized on some level so this is i think white supremacy is the racial trauma of white people it's that it comes from a fear of being removed from history it comes from a fear that you are no longer going to be seen as worthy and we are all impacted by this this is not something that helps white people this is something that is it's like the elephant in the room That we have to eventually come to reckon with if we if we want to move towards a more just and equitable society that's safe for all people i don't see why anyone wouldn't uh, want that but um there are capitalists so as i uh yeah that's the thing Slavability anchors capitalism so you need to have some analysis of like uh capitalism um, and these are again white supremacy. Capitalism, these are all dangerous words. Uh, a few like decades ago, no one would be talking about these. This is scary. This is so scary. And and why is because it's unconscious. And when you bring the unconscious to the conscious level, fear happens. This is why you're not allowed to teach critical race theory, because if we realize the real history, that's scary, and that too is called a trauma response. The thing is, as a therapist, when I look at these terms. And when I look at what's going on, I can't help but think, wait a second, like, um, some of these reactions look like what you would see in the therapy room. And so then I tried to just create a a perspective that's based uh, on like research and based on the idea of trauma reprocessing, to, to for me to be able to get to a better understanding and for others as well, to help their clients more, more effectively.
0: And like, that's a really good point. And, you know, I think about this a lot, like, it can't feel good to be that angry, you know, when you're thinking about the the people who stormed the Capitol, uh, in January. Like it just it can't it's not a good feeling to hang on to that. And how do we get past this? For people that don't wanna take that self critical view, um I don't know, is the solution just everyone has to go to therapy and and take a look at themselves. I get stuck when there's knowing that there's people out there who who simply might not want to, and I just I'm not sure where to go from there.
1: Uh, the difficult thing also about being a therapist is that um, you're only responsible for the client that is in your office. so it's like after the client leaves the office as a therapist, you eventually need to practice your own self-care because there's no other way of being able to sit with suffering day in, day out, people crying, people saying terrible things about what happened to them. So the importance of the therapist, uh, which is not always taught at, at the level of importance that it does have, uh, but uh, self-care is essential. Uh, what i'd say is that um, although i know of a uh, of an approach to resolve trauma which is based on the the ideas of memory reconsolidation uh, that seems to be pretty effective at being able to resolve individual traumas it also when a person is able to understand that their trauma uh, comes f- not only from them but also from the pain that was sub- that their parents that their ancestors were subjected to when they're able to be a bit more conscious about what has previously been unconscious, then they can be cycle breakers. It means that they can find ways of breaking the cycle so that they no longer need to pass on some of these habits, whether it's the alcoholism, whether it's um, the um, like the anger management issues, which again are just ways of being able to, to nurse like uh, the trauma, nurse the pain, to kind of keep it, set it aside. When people are able to heal themselves, then they have a choice of being able to make it so the next generation uh, doesn't need to go through what they went through. However, I'm also going to say that uh, it would be very simplistic if I was just like, you know, everyone just needs to do anti-racist psychotherapy, and then the world will be rainbows. So the thing is, I don't know the solution for what will end racism in the world. But I do know that with an individual, Uh, there's ways we have the technology, which took some time, but we have the technology of being able to reprocess it efficiently. What we need to start to think about is how do we reprocess trauma at the social level? Um, It may not necessarily look like EMDR or brain spotting or emotional freedom techniques or any of the stuff that I do, but we have to start to think is this a problem, and then be willing to engage with it from that perspective of, we must solve this problem because our life depends on it, because it literally does. This idea of white supremacy, this idea of that there's an absolute good and an absolute evil is kind of making it so that the world itself is suffering from climate change. We know that there's existential threats that are out there. Um, but you know the people who want to do something about it, they don't seem to have as much power as the people who are benefiting from it. So for the answer as to how do we actually make this difference, first step is just to acknowledge that there's a problem, uh, which is challenging because we don't always want to look at our history. The other step is going to be that, that we have to start to think, okay, how important is it for us to really solve this problem? We need the motivation. And when we have that motivation, and when we have that patience and we have that creativity, I think we as a species, we can really do anything.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. So you, you touched on economics, uh, you touched on social structures and and yeah. A, a, and to your point, like slavery is an economic tool. Um, it it's it's the it was the foundation of that a lot of our world is built right now and um, i just want to remind people that canada did have slaves um that is in our history and we don't talk about it enough um so i, I just wanted to signpost that there um but yeah so i i, I mean thinking about how complex identities can be like you don't want to flatten the experience of an entire group of people and everyone is more than one thing. You can be a father, you can be gay or, or trans or, and, and, you know, the, you know, I guess the term here is intersectionality. Um, so I, I guess like, how does that play into how people I- I experience trauma and, and how you approach treatment? So
1: first, um, uh, I just want to let you know that I agree. And I also, um if i can say i'm so glad you're having this podcast and i'm looking forward to hearing like the other guests because uh, these are some necessary conversations um but i wanted to say too is that um, when you spoke about uh the times of enslavement the interesting thing about um enslavement is that it was that black people were told that they were worth less but they were generating the wealth of white people it's just very interesting that it's like they were treated as if they were nothing but without them there wouldn't be this so it's kind of like um this is fascinating uh, this this idea and this is why like it doesn't really follow logic even racism is not like a fully logical thing but it does take a little bit of practice, and it does take like a, an accumulation of trauma and delegitimization uh, over generations and centuries for people to get locked into these false constructs in and, and how they perceive themselves and how they perceive others. When we talk about intersectionality, uh, it's a similar idea. Um, it's, it's similar but different. It's that the experience of a man, for example, like as, as well, I'm a cisgendered male. So the thing is that my experience being a black man is going to be different from the experience of a white man. Why? Because listen to the last 30 minutes of what we just explained. Uh, the thing is also is that my experience as a black man is different from the experience of a black woman. Why? Because the thing is that not only will she be experiencing the issues of gendered violence or a higher rate of being killed by an intimate partner just because you happen to have uh, genitals that are different from a man, that's pretty much the only reason. And also is that she's also going to have uh, difficulties in terms of economics because uh, because she's a woman. And so it's the combination of both Uh, misogyny and also racism that's going to impact her differently than it can ever impact me and also differently than I can really fully understand. So when I'm talking to my clients um, and they're saying that they are uh, like lesbian, that they are bisexual, that they have like a different type of relationship from me, then I tell them that even though I am an anti-racist psychotherapist, it's also that there's some blind... not even blind spots, because even that word is ableist. So interesting how we're just rediscovering all these different ways of looking at things. I just say that there's some things that are outside of my own conscious awareness. So as a therapist, um, I may get some things wrong. Um, I may not know it all. And of course, there is a power differential because I'm a therapist and you're a client. Just know that you always have permission to check your therapist. And you always have permission to be able to say no, actually, that's incorrect. And it, you know, it's humbling for a therapist to know that they that they need to learn a bit more. But all of this is really just to say that these ideas of identity, um, that not everyone has the same experience. So the liberal idea of we're all immigrants, we're all the same, there's no colors. This is, this is foolishness.
0: Yeah and there's room for nuance, right? Like it's, yeah, because I think about this in terms of suffering, and we talk about the trans movement, and then the the fight against anti-black racism. It's weird how siloed a lot of these movements can feel sometimes, and I hear people falling into like, okay, but who's suffering more, and who should we be devoting our energy to helping? I just don't know how to have these conversations. Like it's, I I hear everyone, you know, everyone's hurting and I'm just, I wonder how can we acknowledge each other's suffering while also like looking for opportunities to work together.
1: Uh, There's been times where I'd be at like, (laughs) I'd be at like presentations or it's like I'm talking about anti-racism and then there's a white person saying, but what about white people? And I'm like, but wait a second, this isn't, you got your space, you know, your space is 364 days of the year this is just my day right now you know so the thing is that i do think that it is possible for people to um to move beyond even the idea of allyship because allyship is for me what allyship is is that i don't have the study in front of me but i'm writing about it in my next book but it's about i think it was the pew research center they said that white support for black lives matter decreased by about like 40 to 60% from June of uh, 2020 to about September 2020 okay so allyship is this thing that you can just put a badge on you can change your facebook uh, profile and then say black lives matter and then next month you can be done with it because you know benefit from whole this whole system so it's challenging to really say you black lives matter 365 days in the years is is tough so the thing is that uh it's not allies it's accomplices that people mean that um there's i think it's uh the name of the group is surge i think it's s-u-r-j um but it's just that for them it's just that there's white there's white people who have movements that are only just white people that are down with being able to be disruptive or be activists in their own way without needing to subvert black people in the process. Because there's a bit of like, like there's sometimes when when it is like a multiracial space, even if all people want the same thing, because this racial trauma of whiteness is so deep, Sometimes aspects of white supremacy or patriarchy can still play out, even if there are activists around the same with the same cause. So that's the challenge. Um, so it's it's difficult to navigate. But also what I want to say too, though, is that we are in an infancy stage. Like for me, when I saw Black Lives Matter, um when I was protesting in Montreal, I was like, "I can't believe how many different types of people there. Are. There were white people white people were, there were a lot of white people who showed up. There were like people that were like, uh, like I saw like some Arabic signs and all that. There were a lot of people who showed up. And so I do believe it's, it should be that everyone should just realize that this is everybody versus racist, because that'll make things a bit easier. But there needs to be space for like uh, LGBTQ, like groups to protest their cause without needing to be led by a straight guy that that needs to happen. There needs to be BIPOC groups that are like trained, for example, training therapists without white people being involved at all. Because there's something transformative when we see that we can be lifted up by our own rather than someone else playing white Jesus or playing like white savior syndrome. So the thing is, it is complex and it is challenging, but I do think that it's because all of these words like intersectionality they're not new they're just new to the to the public people have been talking about this for forever uh, or for a while but it's just that we just need to understand that like we're at the beginning of something and it's going to evolve
0: what what's the danger of of not thinking about these systemic problems when you're speaking to your client and when you're trying to help your client in front of you
1: ah that's interesting well it's kind of like um the question is like is it really best practice that's that's the question that i have i have i have also another question um which i don't think anyone will ever answer for me maybe someone can um i don't know if we know like these terms of best practice i know that as a therapist um it's that I know that there's a specific way how I need to interact in order to ensure that the most amount of good happens towards the person that I'm working with and interacting with. But when we look at disparities in terms of like when police violence towards black people, for example, that because I happen to be a black man that there's higher chance of a black person killing me for no reason, nothing at all. My question is, is that best practice? Like, Is there a research base that's behind that? I would just assume if I can just critique that aspect of policing, is, is there a research base behind the effectiveness of firearms in certain types of situations? And is that what is being followed? Because I know that as a therapist, we are put under a lot of scrutiny about like needing to follow an evidence base, you know, following science and all of these things. So is this happening in other fields? Is this happening in teaching? are white teachers aware of the fact that they themselves may have internalized their own racist ideas and that they may disproportionately cause more suspensions for black students, for more detentions for black black students? There's a book called Push Out that talks about uh, how uh, black girls sometimes are just given higher consequences than others because the teacher may see them as being more dangerous. So and I've been there. I've gotten you know detentions and all that types of stuff. So the thing is, like, high school's not not always as easy as it needs to be. But um, I think that as a therapist, um, it's that the challenge is that our field is super white. That's one of the biggest challenges with the therapy is that all the theories we're learning from are from old white guys, and it's just that it's very rare to see a theory that is talking about. Like race, because we can only generate like the, we can only generate what our experiences from the past like allow us to to generate. So it's like a parent can only teach a child what the parent has learned. They're unable to teach anything outside of their own awareness. So our field is very white, and our field is like taught in the the ivory towers and you need to have a certain level of expertise and a certain level of privilege in order to do therapy so that itself means that when i'm talking about white supremacy i'm talking about our educational system i'm talking about what it's like to be in a university and which explains the mental health difficulties that university students can have all of that stuff if we as therapists are not asking about race, then we have to wonder why. Is it that asking about race is going to improve uh, the outcomes? Because it turns out, yes, is that Black clients do want to have a space where they can speak about race. But if we ask about it, are we prepared for the answer? And it turns out that many white clinicians are not necessarily trained to talk about aspects of race. I've spoken to some black clients that told me that they came to meet with me because they had um, racial microaggression from another uh, health professional. So I do think that we need to just reestablish what best practices are across the board in psychotherapy. Yes, we need to also try to think about how the therapists themselves can be able to reflect on themselves, that we can practice what we prescribe. We also need to think about best practices in the other fields as well. But again, that's kind of how I'd, how I'd answer that. Where can people find your book? The name of the book is Anti-Racist Psychotherapy, Confronting Systemic Racism and Healing Racial Trauma. You can get it on Amazon. I know some people are not a big fan of people who fly in spaceships, polluting the whole planet just to feed their egos. but the thing is that you can also get it. I think Barnes and Nobles has it. I think Walmart has it. But again, Walmart. <laughs> like, like the thing is, look, the thing is that you can get my book. Google it, put anti-racist psychotherapy in your Google. And you're gonna find it at some place that you may or may not have a problem with. The next book is called Black Meditation: 10 Practices for Self-Care, Mindfulness, and Self-Determination. And that book is not like anti-racist psychotherapy is more for the academic, it's more for the person who wants uh, the understanding of the neurobiological implications of racial trauma. And then black meditation is practical skills that you can use to just um, get into the idea of meditation, getting into the idea of caring for yourself. Because I I feel that, uh, that we need more of that. We need, uh, if we want more compassion in the world, we at least need to take care of ourselves.
0: Thank you. And that's the show. I want to thank David Archer for coming on, and I'll put links to his books in the show notes if you want to check them out. And if you have feedback, or if there's anyone you think I should talk to, feel free to give me a shout. I'm on Twitter at eric__decare, or hit me up on email, show. Everything in this episode was researched, recorded, and produced by me. Thanks for listening.